Please join me in turning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. We are going to pick up once again with Luke chapter 20 and verse 45 this morning and taking us into chapter 21 and verse 4. Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 45. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all, out of their surplus, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Father, make us receptive to your word this morning. For Christ's sake, amen. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Kent Hughes notes that the Westminster Larger Catechism states a principle rarely expressed in our own day, namely that the same sin may be more terrible when committed by one person than another. Question 150 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks this, Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? The answer comes, All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, But some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. That was question 150 of the Catechism. The next question, 151, continues that discussion by asking this. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? And the catechism goes on to give a four-part answer that Hughes summarizes as follows. First, some sins are more heinous than others due to the advantages of the offenders. The catechism puts it this way, if they be of riper age... If they be of riper age, greater experience of grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, guides to others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others, their sins are more terrible. Secondly, some sins are more heinous than others due to the parties that they directly offend. Blasphemy of God is heinous, but also sins against any of the saints, particularly weak brethren, 
the souls of them or any other, and the common good of all or many are particularly heinous. Thirdly, some sins are more heinous than others due to the nature and quality of the sin. That is, if the sin is committed while fully knowing God's graces and requirements, and yet doing it anyway, while admitting no reparation or fault. And then, fourthly, some sins are more heinous than others due to the circumstances of time and place. If in public or in the presence of others who are thereby likely to be provoked or defiled. And from this, we can draw this sobering conclusion. Sin committed by experienced Christians is greater than in others. Because experienced Christians have longer and therefore greater experiences of grace. They offend not only God, but in particular the souls of those who are weaker in the faith. They knowingly sin against God's requirements, and they defile others through the leadership roles that go to experienced believers. My point is that sins committed in the uh, committed by those in leadership are far more destructive than sin committed by new believers, for instance. Those immature in their faith, those who have not had opportunity to grow in grace and their knowledge of the word. And this is what was so upsetting to Jesus, of course. The religious leaders of his day were leading others astray by their sin. And so Jesus warned his disciples about the corrupt authority of the religious leadership there in Judah. But then in contrast to the conduct of the religious leaders, Jesus went on to affirm the actions of this poor widow whom he saw there at the temple where all this was taking place. And we want to look at each of these in turn this morning because Luke deliberately places a contrast before us. I say it over and over again. Be careful about the chapter divisions. Luke did not write his gospel with chapter divisions. And so we need to follow all the way through and see the contrast that Luke here is drawing for us. First, the condemnation of the corrupt religious leaders. And then the commendation... Of the poor widow. As we have alluded to already, this passage obviously has two parts. One is negative, one is positive. One part brings the condemnation of Jesus, the other, the commendation of Jesus. We want to look at that condemnation first. As we've seen in weeks past, during this last week of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus is engaged with several controversies with each of the different religious groups in Israel at that time. 
After he had successfully answered each religious group and in the hearing of all the people, Jesus then, in verse 45, issues a warning to his disciples. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples. Although Jesus' warning was in relation specifically to the scribes who were the theologians of the day, it seems that it's clearly applicable to all of those in religious leadership. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the chief priests. And he's critical of these religious leaders in a number of ways. The first thing we see, of course, is pride. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor in the banquets. Jesus was warning his disciples to watch out for religious leaders who possessed a massive sense of self-importance. They had massive egos. They lived for people to look up to them and to speak well of them and to honor them and respect them. And Of course, the human heart never changes. We have the same struggles today. Philip Riken said this, how deadly these attitudes are in the church, where we still face many temptations to pharisaical pride. We're called to be who we are in Christ, nothing more and nothing less. Instead, we are sometimes tempted to suggest, even in subtle ways, that we are more spiritual than we really are. More active in service, more faithful in prayer, more knowledgeable in the scriptures, more concerned about people in need. Even if we do not insist on anyone giving us an honorary title or saving us a good seat in church, we secretly live for the flush of gratification that comes when people praise us. But when our godliness gets overlooked and when we feel that our service is unappreciated, our resentment begins to burn. But that is so unlike Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet he temporarily set aside the glory which he possessed with his Father in order to come down into this broken, sinful, evil world to serve. Sinful people like us. Paul said it in Philippians chapter 2, being found in the form of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on the cross. So Jesus warns his disciples, and us of course, to avoid pride so that our lives might be marked instead by humility. The other issue that he had with them, or one of the other issues that he addresses here, is their greed. He goes on to say that the religious leaders devour widows' houses. What does that mean? In what way did these religious leaders devour widows' houses? Luke doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't specify Perhaps they were cheating 
vulnerable widows out of their houses, out of their estates. Their husbands died, and they are vulnerable, and they are taken advantage of. Perhaps they took over the houses as pledge for for debts that couldn't be repaid. Perhaps they encouraged widows to make gifts beyond their means. Whatever they did, they were somehow taking possession of widows' houses in ways that were wrong and sinful. They were taking advantage of the weakest among them. And of course, we have that taking place in our society today. Scammers of all sorts call on elderly people and widows and take financial advantage of them. Prosperity heretics lie when they encourage people to give to their ministry, promising that if they do, God will give it back a hundredfold. Jesus was very critical of greed here. Jesus himself, of course, literally owned only the clothes on his back. And he was teaching his disciples to be content with what they had. He, wanted, he, he, he wants us as well to be content with what God gives us, not to be greedy for what we do not have, which the scripture refers to as covetousness. With food, with clothing, I will be content, Paul says. Jesus isn't done yet. Jesus also has an issue with the religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. You see that again in verse 47. Not only do they devour widows' houses, but for appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. Now, as one who publicly prays, let's clarify something here. Jesus' issue is not with long prayers. His issue is with long prayers prayed for appearances' sake. These religious leaders apparently would offer up long, flowery, rhetorically impressive prayers not because they were communing with God, but because they wanted other people to see and to hear and to say, wow, he must be really godly. It was all pretense. They made themselves appear pious and holy, but it was a sham, and all the more so because of the way in which they treated widows. Their actions contradicted their prayers. Again, Riken is helpful in his comments on this section. He says there is a time and a place for long prayers. He's a pastor too, so. No one has ever understood this better than Jesus, who sometimes spent a whole night in prayer. A prayer needs to be as long as it needs to be. Sometimes we have a lot of things to pray about, and sometimes, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have a longing to linger in the presence of God, pouring out our praise. But our Father already knows everything about us. So simple prayers can be equally effective. 
Like little children who know their father's love, we can come right out and tell God our troubles, asking, for, asking him for what we need. There is no inherent virtue in praying long prayers. You can say that about preaching, too, by the way. The question is often raised among pastors and always raised in seminary classrooms. How long should a sermon be? And I've come to the conclusion that a sermon should be as long as it takes to deal faithfully with the passage that is being preached. Our prayers should be as long as it takes to lift up before the Lord what is rightfully his in our praise and our adoration, and also our need. I'm not so sure that we even understand what a long prayer is in our day. You go back and you read some of the Puritan prayers, and not just in you know, that, that little wonderful book, Valley of Vision. If you've never seen that, I encourage you to get it. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. But even there, it's somewhat edited. You go back and look at some of the originals, and boy, (laughs) put me to shame. (laughs) So, you know, in our day, with the attention span that we have, we don't know what really long prayers are, but praying so that others can see us or hear us. We know what that is. That's hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus disproves of. We are not to be hypocritical in the way that we serve him. We are not to have one face when we're in a certain group of people or when we're out in public than we wear when we are alone communing with our Lord. That is hypocrisy. And of that, Jesus was very critical. So Jesus was critical of pride and greed and hypocrisy. And Jesus says, there's going to be judgment that comes upon those who are guilty of this kind of sin. These, he says, will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. Right? Not every sin is the same. Not every sin is as heinous as the catechism said. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 18, that whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, anyone who does not believe that Jesus is the only one who can save sinners stands under God's condemnation. And here in Luke 20 verse 47, Jesus says that those who are guilty of pride and greed and hypocrisy will receive the greater condemnation. The only way to escape condemnation is to repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Really, that's all? 
I just told you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that not deserving of an amen? Amen? Stay with me here. Come on. We're in this together, brothers and sisters. There is no condemnation for us. But if we are not in Jesus Christ, there is condemnation. And those who have been blessed with much will receive a condemnation that is greater. It is sobering to consider. These scribes, these chief priests, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they knew more than anyone else in Israel. And they were proud of it. And Jesus says, you may know a lot, but you don't know me. And since you know a lot, your lack of knowledge of me will incur a greater condemnation. How great will the condemnation be? For those who come into churches like this one and sit under the teaching of the word of God and die outside of Christ. It is a sobering thought and one that you ought to consider. Because coming and sitting in this place means nothing in regard to your spiritual state. We come into relationship with the Father by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ, by no other means. And someone can come and sit in a pew and they can, as they would probably describe it, endure an hour, an hour and a half every Sunday. And the reason they might describe it as enduring it is because they're just here to be here. And they're not engaged. You'll never get an amen out of their mouth. Because the word of God doesn't excite them. Because they are dead to it. And just being here doesn't change that. The Holy Spirit changes that. As one is drawn to faith in Christ. As one begins to see their sin for what it is. Worthy of that condemnation. And then repents of it. And leaves their sin at the cross. The condemnation is not only for the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. The condemnation is for everyone who thinks they're religious. But doesn't know Jesus hasn't had their lives changed by the grace of God. So that's the condemnation. The contrast comes as we move into chapter 21 and we see a commendation. The commendation of the poor widow. And this is a perfect counterpoint to what we've just been seeing. It's an incident about a poor widow, perhaps a widow whose house has been devoured. Although the text doesn't specifically say so, that would make sense. 
It's helpful to know a little about the temple of, at Jerusalem as we look through this passage together. The temple itself consisted of a small building at the very center of a larger complex. Around the temple there were various courtyards and depending on who you were you could get closer and closer to that building because that building housed of course the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go and that only once a year. But you had the court of the Gentiles and you had a court of the women And then so on, moving closer and closer. William Barclay said, in the court of the women in the temple, there were 13 collecting boxes known as the trumpets. They were shaped like trumpets, with the narrow part at the top and the wider part at the foot. Each was assigned to offerings for a different purpose. For the wood that was used to burn the sacrifice, for the incense that was burned on the altar, for the upkeep of the golden vessels, and so on. So that's the picture of what Jesus is talking about here. There were these trumpets, collecting boxes. We have a square wooden one in the back, in case you weren't aware of that. But they had these trumpets, and... Each trumpet was for a different purpose, and people would come, and they would place their offering in one of these trumpets. And Luke said that Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into these trumpets, these offering boxes, essentially. So, clearly, Jesus is close enough to see what's going on. He sees the rich putting their gifts into the box, and then he does something we would consider to be quite rude. He's paying attention to how much people are giving. When we go back to passing offering plates, you know, that's just considered impolite. So what's, what's this guy doing over here? But Jesus looks and he sees this poor widow put two small copper coins into the offering. Nobody else would have paid attention to that. Even if they were being nosy, it's not going to make an impression upon you. And some old lady puts a couple of pennies into the offering. It would have gone entirely unnoticed except... For the comments that Jesus makes about it. When he sees what's going on that day. And so he sees this poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Now his comment is very straightforward. There's nothing difficult to understand about what Jesus is saying here. There are seemingly no interpretive difficulties. What is difficulty, what is difficult, I should say, is figuring out how to apply this. We often want to minimize the impact of Jesus' comments so that we are not so pointedly affected 
There's got to be a loophole in here somewhere. Was it um, W.C. Fields? Somebody came across him one day reading the Bible, and someone asked him why, knowing his life, why are you reading the Bible? And his answer was, I'm looking for loopholes. The rich gave, perhaps gave even more generously, and yet after they had given, they still had plenty of money left over. On the other hand, the poor widow gave all she had to live on. And part of the difficulty for so many has to do with the fact that the poor widow gave all that she had to live on. That seems irresponsible. What does that mean? J.C. Ryle, I think, has a good answer. He says, the meaning of this expression is disputed. Some think that it means that the widow gave the whole of her property. Others think that it means that she gave the whole amount of her daily income. And Ryle says, the latter view seems the more probable one. In other words, she probably gave her daily income, and fasted the rest of the day. Now you remember, if you you understand the monetary situation in the New Testament, there are, are often parables told and situations described concerning day workers, right? day laborers we'd refer to them as. And Jesus talks about these, and he talks about those who are taken advantage of by the rich as day laborers who work all day long and then get what at that time would have been a denarius. And from that denarius, they would feed themselves and their family. And if they didn't work, they didn't eat. And if they were cheated out of their wage... They and their family go hungry. And Ryle is saying this is probably that kind of a situation. This this old widow lives off of these two copper coins every day. Now she gives them, and what is she going to use to eat the rest of the day? So, Whichever it is, she gave all that she had for the day at least. And she did this because of her love for God. Now, just a few observations in this regard. First, when it comes to giving, the spirit in which I give determines its value. Not the amount, necessarily, but the spirit in which I give. When you write a check to the IRS... That agency doesn't care at all about your attitude. You probably knew that already, but just a reminder, they don't care if you grumble or complain or cry. They just want your payment. But God is not the IRS. God looks at your heart. God searches your motives. If you give to God and grumble and complain or even cry, then God is not at all pleased. But if you give cheerfully, then God is thrilled. He is delighted in your gift. Another observation is this. 
the value of your giving is determined by the sacrifice which it involves. Giving $10 may be small change to one person and a large sum to someone else. The gifts that the rich put into the offering box really didn't cost them very much at all. Their life wouldn't have changed a bit. On the other hand, these two copper coins of the poor widow cost her everything she had. The rich probably calculated how much they could afford. The poor widow gave with amazing generosity until she could give no more. Pastor Joseph Parker was a friend and contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, if you were living back in Victorian England at the end of the 19th century, it probably would have been a toss-up as to who was more popular and famous. Of course, we know who won that contest as time went on. But they were friends and contemporaries, and Parker made this statement, the gold of affluence, which is given because it is not needed, God hurls to the bottomless pit. But the copper tinged with blood, he lifts and kisses into the gold of eternity. You can see why Parker would have been a popular preacher in his day. That's a wonderful image, isn't it? You give all of this gold of affluence. And if it doesn't cost you anything, God hurls it into the bottomless pit. But you give just a little bit. You give a copper coin that costs you. And God turns it into eternal gold, that of eternal worth. You know that God has used those two copper coins and he has multiplied them into untold billions of dollars for the expansion of his kingdom. As the story of this poor widow has been told time and time again throughout the centuries, men and women and boys and girls have been touched by the Holy Spirit and by her example and have given generously to God and to the expansion of the kingdom. These four verses have been used by God to do amazing things in the building of the kingdom. And of course, the question is very simple. Who are you going to emulate? Are you going to emulate the teachers of Israel? Are you going to emulate the rich who give when it doesn't cost anything? Or will you emulate this poor widow? Let me tell you a story related by Phil Riken, whom I've quoted several times this morning. He was at one time the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, is now the president of Wheaton College. He writes this, when I was a student at Philadelphia's Westminster Theological Seminary, I was always impressed by a framed notice in the lobby of Machen Hall. 
The notice reads as follows. Fanny Mulder was called to glory on October 20th, 1987. In a letter from her attorney, we learned that she had only the following personal property in her possession when she died, having been on Title 19 for the last few years. It's a welfare program. And then the notice listed the contents of this woman's apartment. She had some clothes, six robes, two sweaters, 13 adult diapers, 19 hospital gowns, one pair of slippers, and five pairs of socks, plus two singles. So her dryer stole them, clearly. She also had some personal items, a purse, a mirror, an old thimble, a toothbrush, a comb, some soap, some powder bottles, and a pair of reading glasses. She needed the glasses. She needed the glasses so she could read her two copies of the Bible and her Psalter for singing. In addition to a broken radio, the only other thing Fanny Mulder had in her possession was some money. Only 12 cents. A dime and two pennies. But the lawyer explained that the old woman had drawn up a will because she felt strongly that she should invest whatever she had in the work of the kingdom. After the will went through probate, the seminary was the beneficiary of the dime and the two pennies, now gratefully displayed on campus as the lasting testimony of a woman who gave Jesus everything she had. The poor widow only had two copper coins, and she gave them both to her God. Fanny Mulder had a lot more than two pennies. She had 12, 12 cents, and she gave them all as well. Jesus' condemnation rests on each person who does not believe in him. But according to this passage, a greater condemnation rests upon those who are filled with pride and greed and hypocrisy. However, Jesus' commendation rests on those who believe in him and who give to him with open-handed, sacrificial, joyful generosity. I pray that that commendation may rest on each one of us here this morning. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father, for your word. Father, I pray this morning that each of us who name the name of Christ would be imitators of this poor widow. May we hold loosely to the things of this world and tightly to Jesus. This we ask in his name. Amen.